Hello there and a very warm welcome to Des's Island Discs. In a hectic world, this is a little oasis of calm and nostalgia from our guests who choose pieces of music that remind them of a particular time or story from their life or career. Now, if you're listening on podcast, we cannot play the music because of copyright laws. But really, this is about stories. So let's hear them. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. My name is Des Cahill and today's guest who will share the stories behind their musical memories is singer Charlie McGettigan. Born in Ballyshannon, County Donegal, but based in Leitrim for many years, Charlie struck international fame in 1994 when, along with Paul Harrington, he won the Eurovision Song Contest with the song Rock and Roll Kids. Now, we'll talk Eurovision in a while, Charlie, but first, how do you reflect on your early years growing up in Ballyshannon? Well, first of all, I've got to correct you on one thing. I'm actually a dub, believe it or not. Oh. <laughs> I, I, was born in, in, I was born in Hollis Street Hospital because my mum was a dub. She, she lived in a place called 22F Road in Rat Mines uh, in Dublin. And uh, she met my father actually in Mundorn, in the Imperial Hotel of Mundorn, when she was down on her holidays. And uh, a couple of years later, they, they, they got married. 1948, they got married. And, you know, I remember a little bit about Dublin. I would have spent, uh, you know, times to and fro, because my dad is from Ballyshannon. Um, so, he, you know, we would to and fro between Dublin and Ballyshannon for a couple of years. Mm. But eventually, of course, settled in Ballyshannon. And one of the first places we lived in was a place that you're quite familiar with, familiar with yourself. It's a place called Clune Barn. Now, Clune Barn is a county council estate and it's a very unusual county council estate in that you had all sorts of sections of community. You had bank managers, you had uh, guard superintendents, you had agricultural inspectors, you had road diggers, you had road sweepers, everybody all living in the, in the same uh, sort of complex, about 70-odd houses. Mm. We lived in number 58, I remember it well. And it was, a, it was a, it, it just a really, really beautiful place to live because everybody mixed in together. Doors were always open in those days. You know, you, you left your front door open and people wandered in and out whenever they felt like it. <laughs> Granny could be washing her feet in the kitchen and, and, and people would walk yeah. in in the middle of it, yeah. you know. But it was that kind of a place and I have great, great memories of that. But Ballyshannon, you know, somebody told me one time, Desi, I don't know whether you, anybody said this to you ever, but somebody told me that everything was in black and white in the 1950s and before that. And everything after that in the 60s was in colour, mainly because when we look at pictures way back for, from that period, uh, they're all in black and white. Yeah. Everything's in black and white. Yeah. Um, so that, you know, for all its greyness, you know, the, people talk about how grey the 50s were. For all that greyness, I had an idyllic childhood. I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Were you singing as a youngster? Well, you know, the first song I remember uh, singing was How Much Is That Doggy in the Window? And, uh, you know, uh, you know, you probably don't, you're probably too young to remember that, Desi, but it was no, a, a very popular song at the time. Yeah. <laughs> the next one I remember singing was Davy Crockett, The King of the Wild Frontier. Yeah. My dad brought me to see the film. I remember he brought me to Bundoran to see the film. I was about six or seven at the time. And I literally become obsessed with Davy Crockett and the coonskin hat and the, the you know the rawhide clothes and the whole lot. With the, with the result that I got a Davy Crockett suit for Christmas that year, but I could sing Davy Crockett, the King of the Wild Frontier. To, uh, you know, I could sing it every day if I if I could. Davy, Davy, is that the one? Davy Crockett, that's yeah. the one. Yeah, the King of the Born on the Mountain Top of Tennessee, yeah. killed himself a bear was he, when he was only three. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can see how it attracts somebody. So you, you were, they were songs you just sang yourself, but did, did you ever consider being a professional musician as a youngster? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Uh, way back then, there was a horse show every year in a place called Dandy, just out there at Snowler Road there in Ballyshannon. And it was always a great event every year. There would have been cake sales and all kinds of things built around it. But my dad, the night before the show, my dad was helping to set up a public address system in the, in the arena. I would have been about eight at the time. And he told me to stand up in front of this thing, which I didn't know what it was, but it was a microphone, a big ball thing at the top and, a, and, a, and it was on a stick. And uh, I, he said, sing, sing something for him. And I sang, funny, my first choice of music today, I sang this song. Uh, it was called um, uh, Catch a Falling Star. And you know, when I started, when I heard my voice going round the speakers, all around the, ar- uh, the arena, I instantly, instantly fell in love with the sound of my own voice. And I said, this is what I'm going to do. Wow. So that was the song I sang, it was Catch a Falling Star by Perry Como. And what age were you? I was about eight at the time. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Catch a Falling Star by Perry Como the choice of today's guest, Eurovision winner, Charlie McGettigan. So you're now eight and you've sung publicly, but it's a long way between that and and a professional career. Yeah, well, I I suppose, you know, my mum was very much a a big, you know, she used to go to the Theatre Royal in Dublin when she was growing up. You know, there was wonderful shows. They used to have a four-hour show every Sunday night uh, with everybody from Laurel and Hardy to Bob Hope and Bing Crosby and all these people appeared there. And she was very much involved in music hall. She loved music hall. So she was always, the radio would have always been on in the house. But about in around 19, sort of early, late 50s, early 60s, my dad began to listen to a radio station called Radio Luxembourg. Not for the music, but for the fact there was a fellow called Horace Batchelor had an infra-draw method which guaranteed you would win the pools. <laughs> so every Sunday night he used to switch on Radio Luxembourg and, and listen to Horace Batchelor. Uh, I can even remember his dress, 23 Camesham, Bristol. I remember that was part <laughs> of the address. But... But then, what the, the bonus was, it, Radio Luxembourg played all the, the, the current up-to-date pop music. And I began to listen then and hear people like Jerry Lee Lewis and Elvis Presley and the Everly Brothers and all these people. And, but another thing that was out of that, I don't know whether you, you remember this, there was a, there was a bubble gum. Everybody had bubble gum in those days and you, would blow, you, know, you could blow bubbles with awful mm. stuff. But there was a, a company called LM Bubblegum and they had these playing cards. Uh, you could you, you got a, f- a card with every every time you bought one, and it built up. If you built it up, we used to swap with one another. You yeah. built up. You had a deck of cards, but on the back of the cards there were all these American pop stars, like like I say, the Everly Brothers, Fabian, Bobby Rydell, all these um, Americans. And for the first time, I saw a guitar. I saw the Everly Brothers with these guitars, and I said, "Gee, they look so cool." I didn't know what they did, but they look <laughs> really cool. And uh, you know, I was about maybe eleven, twelve. And the, there was a, the, the Donegal Democrats, the man that owned the Donegal Democrats at the time, Cecil King, he decided he was going to start a music shop. And he, he, he sort of tried it out and he put a, in the, in the office of the Donegal Democrat, he had a guitar in the window. And I just, like, I used to go after school every day and just look at this guitar. It was a green guitar with, with Hawaiian trees on it and, <laughs> and, and stuff like that. It just looked, just looked at the part. And, and uh, for, it was really only the way it looked. And of course I was listening to people like Dwayne Eddy and The Shadows and people like that. Um, but I did manage to convince my father to buy me a guitar for, my, for, for Christmas when, uh, on my 13th birthday. And that was, that was the start of it. I didn't know how to play it, but I got it anyhow. And, and how, <laughs> how did you learn to play it? 
Well, there was a fellow up the road, again, you'd know uh, the Traverses uh, uh, in Valley yeah. Shannon, you'd probably know John and Anthony and all, the, all those people. And uh, their brother, the late Michal, who died a couple of years ago, Michal was playing the guitar and he showed me a few chords. And, and uh, I, I bought, a, I, I somehow or other came into a, a, a book by a, by a man called Josh White, who was a black American blues singer. And for, I don't know how I got it, but I ended up with, uh, learning to sort of play the, these blues songs for, before I started doing anything. And, and um, you know, it, it was very annoying for my parents, you know, because they bought me this electric guitar. I thought you just plugged it into the wall, but it turned out you needed a speaker uh, and an amplifier. So I, we figured a way of putting it through the, our radio. Uh, so you could plug it into the back of the radio, but I blew the speaker on the radio, and, and I, I was I was not a not a not a happy camper after yeah. that. Well, I suppose uh, you know when you were going to school, then you know I was going, just going into secondary school, and I remember in those days we walked about right across the town from we lived up in the up in Coombar and Donegal Roadway, and you, you, we walked right across the town to the brother school on the hill. Twice, four times a day, you did it. We went down, over, and back. We used to come home for lunch. And one day I was coming back, and I met this f- f- fellow called John Hannigan. And we got into conversation, and it turns out he had a guitar as well, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, we said, God, we must meet up, you know. And there was a fellow down the road from John, and he had a drum kit. His mum had bought him a drum kit uh, called Johnny Ferguson. Uh, so he, like, he had the most equipment. So we decided we'd go to his house to practice, but not realizing that Johnny had not a clue how to play drums and, and, and not a notion. Uh, but we built up a little band for ourselves, you know, and we used to call ourselves the Rainbows. But we used to spell it because the Beatles misspelled the Beatles. We used to spell it R E N B O U S. We thought we were extremely clever altogether. But we began to afflict ourselves on anybody that was willing to to let us play. You know, and we played at concerts and so. And I remember at the particular show dance, all those years later, they used to have a show dance after the, the horse show. And I remember we paid to get in, to get playing on the stage. <laughs> I remember the, the very professional Paddy McCafferty and his band who wore lovely tartan dinner jackets. And we, we were very impressed with this. But we, we, got, we sneaked our equipment in under the, under the, uh, the canvas and Paddy very kindly uh, allowed us to play. Well, we only lasted for two songs. We were so bad that the pad- Paddy came rushing up. <laughs> get off, get off, you'll ruin my show. <laughs> so it's a long way from that to the Eurovision. Yeah, a very, very long way because we, 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 we continued with that little band for a couple of years. But then one day uh, I got a phone call from a man, a man called John O'Brien of Bundoran and he was after leasing a pub for the summer. Now, this was just at the part, of the, the very beginning of the singing lounges and the, the you know, the, the, the singing pubs and places mm. like that. And he was after getting a busload of, 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 Bel, of Belfast people in and he had nobody to, to entertain them. So he rang us up, rang me up and, I, and he said, would I come out? And I said, so I said, I don't really know much about ballads or anything like that, but I, I borrowed the, I bought the, the Guinness Book of Irish Ballads in Paddy O'Neill's, Pierce O'Neill's shop now. Yeah. I bought it on the way and we thumbed a lift out to Bundoran and we played for these Belfast people. And he ended up giving us the entire summer, June, July and August, seven nights a week uh, to play. And that was the best learning experience I could ever have, Des, because in those days people would get up to sing 
And, they, you know, they could sing anything from a Dubliner song to Frank Sinatra to Tony Bennett or the Beatles, you know, and you would have to back them. Uh, and if it, if it didn't go right for them, it was your fault, you know, they, they, if they didn't sound good. And they could start off in the key of C and end up in the key of G, but then they were finished, you know. But it was the best learning experience, Joe, uh, that you could possibly have sort of three months of playing every night of the week, you know, and, and we got the principal sum of eight pounds a week for that. And we were taught we were made up, there's no doubt. But we were, it was an education for us. It was just wonderful. So we did that for a couple of years then after that. And, and um, I ended up uh, getting a job with the ESB. And the very first night I was, the ESB, I was working in Dublin, the very first night I was there, somebody took me to a place called Slattery's uh, of Capel Street, which was a big folk place at the time. But I didn't really know much about folk music because we'd been playing a lot of electric guitar and, uh, and stuff like that. But the, the, who was there that particular night? Only uh, Lee Moog Flynn was there with his pipes. Donald Lunny was there. This was now about wow. 1968. Uh, Paul Brady was there. And I'd known Paul uh, before because Paul used to play in Bundoran as well in those days. But I heard Al O'Donnell playing the guitar. And, and Ali, uh, or Al played this wonderful Martin guitar, an acoustic guitar. So the very next day I rang up Dad. Dad, I said, I need money. Uh, I need to buy an acoustic guitar. So I bought my first acoustic guitar in Danfe Instruments. Danfe were distributed for Yamaha. They did motorbikes and pianos and uh, guitars. So you can imagine it's a, a, a very strange combination, but that was where I bought my first guitar. And that led on and on for, you know, I didn't, didn't play in public for a long time after that, but I was in Dublin for six years mm. and eventually moved back here to Drumshambo in County Leitrim. And we formed a little band for the score competition. Remember the GAA score yes. competition still goes on? Yeah. We formed a little group uh, for that. And we got as far as the Connacht final, which to me was like, this was <laughs> bigger than the Eurovision at the time. <laughs> and, uh, we won that and uh, we got as far as, as the Connacht final. And it was just, just fantastic. And uh, I think uh, two of the girls who were in the band just weren't up for, for playing. But myself and Eamon Daly, who was the other member, uh, we, we, we decided we were going to go into this big time and we were, go, we were going to play in the pubs. And we, we, we bought a PA system. And I still remember £384 we paid for this PA system. <laughs> and uh, we ended up playing in the pubs. And one thing led to another. Uh, the, the, the name of the band was Jargon. Uh, and with different personnel coming and going, we ended up in the Letterkenny Folk Festival in 19, I think it was 1982. Now, they always had a competition for folk bands and Clannad had won it and Pumpkinhead and people like that. And we won it that particular year. And we got a contract, a record contract with Polygram Records. John Wood uh, was the, the man in Polygram at the time. Mm. And we ended up with our first single, which is called Bailey Borough and Me, which is about a, <laughs> it was, <laughs> it was about, a, about a friend of mine from Baileyborough of all places. And I'd never been to Baileyborough, but <laughs> in the song about <laughs> hearing him talking about it. And we got great airplay and became, well, it just, after that it just blossomed and blossomed and we kept going different combinations, you know. Right. Now, your second musical choice is the Beatles, which suggests they were a big influence on you. Absolutely huge, because for, if for no other reason, I mean, when, when, before the Beatles came along, you, you went to the local barbers, you didn't go for a haircut, you went for an oil change. You know, everybody had the had the uh, the Elvis quaff, and you had to have it slicked back, and you always carried a comb in your pocket. But as soon as the Beatles came along, all that changed. Everybody was combing their hair the other way, yeah. and and uh, that was the visual aspect of it. But musically, you know, from the very first time, I mean, 
The Beatles, Jeannie Mac, you know, I still to this day uh, listen to the Beatles at least once every day, you know, with YouTube and everything else. And I'm, I'm still fascinated by a group that could come from, you know, singing songs like She Loves You, Yeah, 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 to, to wonder, the wonderful music that was in albums like Abbey Road and um, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts. And it was really only about a, about a six-year period. But to, to be alive and around when that whole metamorphosis was happening and they were going from being a, a rough and ready bunch of musicians who had, who had played in Germany and, and went through really rough times to becoming possibly the most sophisticated uh, musicians and singers and composers of, of our era, you know, and they're still to this day as, as big. So my second piece of music is possibly one of the best songs that, that they've written. The great thing about the Beatles was they wrote about their home place and they wrote about places they'd grown up with, like Strawberry Fields. And uh, this particular song is my favourite Beatles single. It's one called Penny Lane. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1. That's Penny Lane by the Beatles, the choice of today's guest, Eurovision winner Charlie McGettigan. Let's talk about the Eurovision and that, and that, that night. The fact that you won it in Ireland must have added to the excitement for it. It was it, it was very exciting. It, it, you know, it, it all happened, curious enough, by, by accident. I, I'd known Brendan Graham for a long time, way, way back, um, when Brendan used to write songs, and we used to, all, we used to meet up in, in song contests. Every, every second town had a song contest way back <laughs> in the 70s. And I first met Brendan in Manor Hamilton at the Wild Rose Song Contest, and he won it um, with a song called Sing Me an Old Irish Song. And... and uh, we knew each other and Brenda would always sort of be playing me little demos of songs and he had this song called Rock and Roll Kids and he asked me to do a demo of it and uh, I did it in the way I thought it w- would have been done and it, it was kind of a Don Williams version mm-hmm. and it was dreadful. Uh, and then he went off anyway and he, didn't ever, he never said to me it was dreadful but I knew it was dreadful myself. But he went off anyway and a couple of months later he came back with another version of it and it was uh, a fellow playing the piano and a vocal. And that was all there was on it. And I said, who is that? He said, that's Paul Harrington. And I said, well, that is, don't even touch that. Don't do anything else with it. That's all it needs. That song, that song is a hit song. Uh, so he, he entered it into the, into the National Song Contest. And it turned out that year that I was on the jury, you know, the people that listened to yeah. the songs. We knew we'd listened to three or 400 songs. And, and, uh, and when Rock and Roll Kids came on, I had to sort of declare, well, you know, I, I know Brendan and I know the singer and I know who it is, so I can't really vote in this thing. So I had to abstain. And the song didn't actually qualify. Uh, so it was, it was almost an omen for something else to happen, yeah. you know. But he put it in the following year and he said, I think it needs just something. And I said, really, Brendan, don't touch it. It's just so good as it is. He said, no, I think it just needs something extra. And I think what he really meant was that Paul was a young, uh, wild thing at the time and he, he needed somebody to look after him. <laughs> and he asked me, would I, would I go and join him? And I, I had to think about it for a while because we were moving house at the time. We were moving, of all places, back to Ballyshannon uh, because the station, the ESB station that I was working in here was closing down. And we had just bought a house in Ballyshannon and we were going to be moving back. And I said, Brenda, you know, it's not a good time for me to be doing this, you know. But he convinced me anyway, and I remember that the National Song Contest used to have a song every year on the Pat Kenny's programme on a Saturday night. Yeah. And I met, I met Paul in the afternoon. We sit, sat down for the first time. We sat down, he played the piano, I played the guitar, I joined in on the harmony, and that was it. We didn't even, we didn't even have to rehearse it. And uh, off we went. And I remember 
that the night we were on, the Minute Chamber Choir were, were on that day. And I loved, I loved choral music and I loved the Chamber Choir. And they were so sophisticated, they were fantastic. But they happened to be sitting in when we were rehearsing. Uh, and they, they applauded. They all stood up and applauded after it. You know, and it, it was, you know, it, I said, gee, you know, this is amazing, you know. Uh, and we went on anyway to, to the final was in, down in the NIHE in, in Limerick. And we we um, won the the won the 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 chance to, to represent Ireland in the Eurovision, and you know it was a series of just accidents. But we never ever played the song the same way twice because it's the fact that it was just the two of us. You know we could bring it in any direction. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, but but that, that that was what led us to Eurovision, and it was it was a wonderful time. There's no doubt. I mean the atmosphere. I know River Dance was was that night as well, but the buzz around it. In the, in the point was was massive. Well, the funny thing about Riverdance, we'd been hearing about Riverdance all week. You know, you spend the, you, for about a week before. You know, it was in the in the Tree Arena at the time, the Point Depot at the time, and um, you rehearse every day, but nobody ever was allowed to watch the Riverdance rehearsal. We just heard that it was a guy called Michael Flatley who I, who I'd seen before because he used to dance with the Chieftains uh, way way back, and you know, but nobody was ever allowed to watch it you know, or see it. And uh, there was all kinds of rumours about this This interval act was something else. And I'll never forget it. You know, we were in the green room, the, the, uh, which, you know, would be a room full of about 250 people. All the delegations from the, from the different uh, countries would have been in there. And usually in a situation like that, everybody's preoccupied with their own performance and they're talking, you know, they're, during the interval, they're not really interested in what's going on on the stage. But there was a big screen in the green room and the river dance appeared on the screen, and there was suddenly a silence. Every single person in the of the of the twenty five countries, every single person stopped, and their jaws dropped, and the, as they looked at this spectacle that was river dance, you know, and and it was just a, just to be part of, just to be there that night was for river dance alone was, was a, just a great privilege. Yeah. I'll never forget it. It was just jaw dropping. It was so new, so different, so sexy. Um, Des, mm. you know, uh, uh, the likes of Gene Butler and and, and Flatley, you know, almost uh, almost making love on the stage in in an Irish dance setting. It was just amazing, absolutely amazing. Yeah, but but you you you're to go along and an hour and a half later and win it, win it. And what, that was th <laughs> three in a row for Ireland then. It was, yeah. Funny, it was something we, we used to bullshit a good a, a bit about winning, you know, because you know that you'd have all these foreign um, journalists and there'd be, all, there'd be a press conference in most days. And we'd always, oh, we're going to win this. You know, no problem, we're going to win this. You know, and, and uh, we had no, absolutely no interest in winning it. Not so much interest, but we know we couldn't even thought it was possible that we could win it. Two old books, as somebody was described as two old buggers <laughs> with beards, you know. <laughs> to, 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 you know, because we had no bells and whistles, no dancing girls, yeah. no flashing lights. And, and uh, it was just the piano and the, and the guitar and, and, and the two of us singing. So we didn't, had no conception of winning at all. So when we began to, began to take off, we began to look very close coming to the end of the vote and began to look very look like we were going to win. And people kept saying to me, uh, you know, you're going to win, get ready to do the reprise, you know. And I could see the guitar over in the corner and I wasn't going to go near that guitar until the, 
till the final vote was in because I could just see myself with the guitar and ready to go and somebody <laughs> says, yeah. and the winner is yeah. Poland, you know, <laughs> somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, it was very exciting. And you know, to be Mary Robinson was present at the time, Albert Reynolds was, was, was the Taoiseach. And they were very enthusiastic. We got to meet them and all that, you know, lots of, lots of other adventures with those afterwards yeah. in the year to follow as well, you know. Yeah, it was, it was fantastic. All of that, all that joy, you, you had dreadful tragedy a few years later when, when your son Shane died in an awful accident in New York. Yeah, well, you know, um, the, Shane was there the night we won the Eurovision and <clears throat> I've, never, I've never actually watched the, the, the actual show um, because, you know, the, when you watch the Eurovision, you tend to think, oh, you aren't going to see your mistakes, you know. But seemingly, uh, there's a flash of thing, and, and it's our Shane waving a big Irish flag, you know, oh, wow. which is, that's in the head, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he was, he was something else, you know. He still is. I don't yeah. mean to bring you to an emotional place, but just... Um to mark him because he's a very talented footballer as well and, and just on his holidays, working holiday in, in America, it was dreadful. Well, he was a great pianist as well, you know, he played piano mm. and, um, you know, it was, I remember one time in particular, um, he got a, he got a, a bad injury to his hand in, in a football, you know, mm. and he used to play the piano before he, before he go to a game, you know, he played the piano to sort of settle himself, you know, mm. and um, he used to play Moonlight Sonata and I always remember that. But, when we went to get his, ha his hand x-rayed, both of his hands, every finger on his hands had been broken. You know, they were all bent, and, and yet he was still able to play the piano. <laughs> and you see, what happened in those days, you got an injury, you got over it, by Wednesday, by Wednesday, your hands were all right again, you didn't feel any pain, but the bones all set crooked, you know, and, and we still have the x-ray there of, of, of his fingers all mangled. Uh, from playing football. And I suppose an awful lot of footballers don't ever get their hands uh, um, x-rayed, but you'll find a lot of them would have the sim a similar thing. Yeah. I remember, I mean, obviously you're a very talented songwriter as well. I remember you talking about Shane one day, oh, many years ago, and your own song, Feet of a Dancer, was played afterwards. I remember being in tears listening to it. It was it's very powerful. Yeah. yeah. Curious, that, that song was written, you know, um, it had really it had nothing to do with Shane at all, but people did tend to think that it was. Yeah. The song, Feet of a Dancer, was written after the Anne Lovett um, case down in Granard. And, you know, the poor, the poor girl, you know, she went through a pregnancy without anybody else known or would have been able to tell anybody. And the, the song more or less says that if my own children, God, I would have felt if my own children had been in that situation, the, the first thing I would want to know and help and help out and stuff, uh, that if ever, and that you try, put the analogy in it that I hope you find all the great things and I hope you find the feet of a dancer and all the wonderful things. Yeah. But remember that you can come home and be with us, you know, and we'll be there to help you if things don't go well. But I did write songs about Shane as well, and, 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 uh, but they were always very difficult to sing, mm. you know, without getting, you know, emotional. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, big, it's a big thing. He was a great guy, and we had great fun, you know, and no bad memories, which is, you know, the best way to keep it, I suppose. Indeed. Well, look, it's been lovely chatting with you, Charlie. Your final musical choice is about John Prine, who sadly passed away recently. I've been singing John Prine's songs since the 1970s. I remember uh, he had a wonderful song called Dear Abby. Now, Dear Abby was a, um, you know, those Dear An An Angela McNamara, yes, those yeah. kind of problem problems, love problems. And he had a wonderful song called Dear Abby. Uh, and we used to sing that in the pubs, only we changed it to Dear Angela. We used to sing it, Dear Angela, because Angela McNamara. Yeah. But I was in Nashville with a bunch of people 
oh God, I can't remember, around, around 1996, 97. And I ended up sitting at a dinner right beside John Prine. And, and uh, you can imagine now, it'd be like a Beatles fan sitting beside Paul McCartney. You know, I was a big John Prine mm-hmm. fan. But he was the nicest and we spoke, we chatted for three hours uh, and, and it was wonderful. At the end of the three hours, he said to me, uh, you're going to the concert tomorrow? And, and I said, what concert? Well, you know, the Chieftains are in town tomorrow. And I said, God, I didn't know that. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't have any tickets. He said, just leave it to me. I'll get you tickets. And I, I thought we'd all had a few jars at that stage. And yeah. I thought, oh, that'll be the end of that. But the next, the next it was a Sunday. And it was, a, it was an afternoon concert. We were, sitting, we were sitting in the lobby of a hotel, myself and Mark Roberts, and I remember. And the next thing I see, John Prine walking by the big window and coming in, I got you your tickets, you know, and we went down and uh, he, you know, that, that particular day was brilliant. The Chieftains were on, but the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band was on. Ricky Skaggs, John Prine himself, wow. um, all kinds of wonderful heroes, musical heroes. And I sat with John's wife and their baby uh, in the audience. And then John brought us backstage and we met all the great people. And uh, he was that kind of a guy. And I met him a few times after that. I met him at, um, at, at Maura O'Connell's 50th birthday party down in, down in Maura. just lived up the road from John, Maura O'Connell in, in Nashville. So she knew him very, very well. And he, he, we had a lovely concert there in, 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 uh, in, um, down in Ennis. And, and uh, he was always a gentleman. You know, always a gentleman and one of the best songwriters. Now, the song I've picked, <laughs> it's, it's a song that's just a tail end of an album. Uh, one of those almost songs just added on at the end of, of an album. And it's a song called Safety Joe. And it's all about that fella who never does anything dangerous, who never would take a risk <laughs> with anything. Lots of us around, it is, as you know. Uh, so that's the song. It's uh, John Prine's Safety Joe. It's a great way to play yourself. Charlie McGettigan, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Des. Enjoyed it. Des's Island Discs on RTE Radio 1.